following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Welcome to our continuation of the Gnostic Gospels. Today we'll talk about the Gospel of Philip. And this scripture emphasizes the nature of relationships. We have here a famous Tibetan Buddhist painting of Padmasambhava, who is considered the second Buddha in that tradition. He is with his wife, his consort, Yeshe Tsogyal, and they represent the path of divine reunion. You find many type of representations within Tibetan Buddhism, especially within their temples, that talk about the sexual nature of God. And that a couple, when properly trained, can take the power of life and create the spirit. But what's necessary is that both man and woman and their love understand how to take that energy and to harness it, to empower the consciousness, our Buddha nature. Buddha in Sanskrit means awakened one, to awaken, to know. And so the very energy that animates a human being can be utilized with specific techniques. And while we are going to talk about the Gnostic Gospels, we start with this image because Padmasambhava taught that the path of a spiritual realization of knowledge of the divine is possible when the couple overcomes desire.
it might seem ironic that in this path of union, a marriage, that there must not be desire. In Buddhism, they teach that desire is the cause of suffering, of pain, attachment, fear, anxiety, worry. And so when they see this image, they become confused. How is it that a couple can be married and not have desire? It's because love is distinct. Conscious love. The soul. Real love. Divine connection. Has no self. No attachment. No fear. No craving to mold the other person to what we want. It is tolerance, compassion, united with objective knowledge about the nature of the soul. And so, our lecture today will talk about these principles, what we call alchemy in the West, or to break down the language, Allah Kimia, to fuse oneself with God. On a basic level, there are many facets of a, of a matrimony. Really, the couple is the bedrock of society. We see that with the breakdown of families, we had the breakdown of institutions. There was a degeneration, a collapse. And not only the family unit, but really there is a deeper purpose to a matrimony than merely to propagate the species or to create order in our culture. Marriage has a potential that few really realize or understand or acknowledge. There is a spiritual truth to what Jesus called being born again. Birth is a sexual problem. It is not a matter of belief. It is a matter of taking a act which is usually animal for most of us and making it divine. But for now, as we commonly understand relationships, we tend to approach sexuality with a mind filled with desire, with attachments, with egotism. This is why in the Gospel of Philip it states, Great is the mystery of marriage. Without it the world would not be. The existence of the world depends on marriage. Think of sex. It possesses deep powers, though its image is filthy. It's also good to talk about the nature of marriage today, because in the West, we see a revision of attitudes towards a tradition that has been 
perhaps abused, adulterated, or corrupted. Religious institutions had a purpose, not merely to protect the well-being of a society, to integrate people, but more importantly, to liberate the soul. And therefore, this sacrament was always a private institution governed by religious authority. But with the breakdown of religion, of institutions, people have lost faith. Now, we go a little bit further than the common, ordinary discussions on marriage, like it's a, a document, paper. Really, when husband and wife unite, man and woman unite, they are married before God, before the divine. Because that creative energy, when it is unified between the couple, is the power to create. And therefore, it's always been kept within the private sphere because it is sacred. And because the power of divinity to create through love is sacred. Not merely physical children, but the soul. The Gospel of Philip explains two types of marriages. <coughs> the defiled and the undefiled. We'll be very clear about what that means. Not merely from a moral standpoint, but from a psychological and a physical one. Defilement, according to Old Testament scripture, relates to orgasm. You find in the book of Leviticus, the Hebrew scriptures, which state that any man who has an emission of semen must bathe himself in water and be unclean until even. That uncleanliness or that defilement, that act, is in itself what creates suffering in the long term. That energy must be conserved, must be protected, must be transformed, must be harnessed. In Tantra, in Buddhism, that power must never be let out. However, when the couple with love takes that power and conserves it, elevates it up the spine, you produce illumination. We'll talk a lot about this, the waters of life, the spiritual symbol of baptism, how through that energy, we are reborn. Instead of giving birth to a child physically, we give birth to Christ. No one can know when the husband and the wife have intercourse with one another, except the two of them. Indeed, marriage in the world is a mystery for those who have taken a wife. If there is a hidden quality to the marriage of defilement, how much more is the undefiled marriage a true mystery? 
It is not fleshly, but pure. It belongs not to the desire, but to the will. It belongs not to the darkness or the night, but to the day and the light. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. The same act, transformed, creates the soul, raises Sophia in the Gnostic myth to Pleroma, the heights, the truth. It is of the day and the light because that energy gives you experiences in meditation, in dreams, and even after death. It awakens you. It is the power of awakening. But we must be pure. We must have willpower. Will to dominate the body, to train it, to make it work for us and not the other way around. So when we talk about marriage, we talk about types of matrimonies. There's a teaching given by Dion Fortune in the Western esoteric tradition, where she speaks about in a book called Esoteric Philosophy of Love and Marriage, about different types of union. We chose these three images to parallel karmic, dharmic, and spiritual matrimonies, going from left to right. If you've studied Buddhism, you know about karma, cause and effect. Karma usually is used in a negative sense, meaning if I do something bad, my bad action will return to me. Dharma means benefit, the law, literally from Sanskrit. And dharma means good deeds, good actions, happiness, good results. And Spirituality or the spiritual marriage is the most ideal because it is when the spirit, when divinity, our inner being, the truth is manifest within the couple. Karmic marriages often are relationships in which we see a lot of fighting, disagreements, pain. Instead of love, we see antagonism. And perhaps such relationships end in divorce because of incompatibility. If you look at our common modern day life, you find that a lot of people fall in this category. Karma, meaning cause and effect, can relate to relationships that we have in life that are a recurrence from past lives. We often meet the very same people we knew from before. We just don't remember. But if you practice meditation, you can understand the connections. You can have experiences that show you who in your life is a return from the past so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. Karmic relationships are repetitions. They're often unconscious. And because they're unconscious, they are often filled with affliction because we don't understand or comprehend how our own mind 
reproduces the same dramas, comedies, tragedies of life. We repeat. This is the wheel of samsara, bhava chakra in Buddhism. We just keep doing the same thing again and again, but expecting different results. However, if we work on ourselves psychologically, we transform our mind, we produce better circumstances. And in this way, we have better relationships. We find a person perhaps who, or someone is in our life who can help elevate our heart, elevate our spirituality. Dharmic marriages is when there is 20, 30, 40, 50 years happiness, contentment, things work. The couple sacrifices for each other. There's a balance, a give and take, a reciprocity. But even dharmic relationships can be transcended. There are spiritual marriages. And this is the very important point within Gnosticism, our tradition, but also many other schools which talk about perhaps twin souls or destiny or, or the marriage of the soul with Christ, according to the early church fathers. In our tradition, we study the writings of Samal and Vior, especially the book called The Perfect Matrimony, where he talks about the spiritual marriage. He calls it the perfect matrimony, in which the couple is in alignment with body, soul, and spirit. The couple is together because both of their inner divinities agreed to work. And therefore, they have affinity within thought, feeling, and will. Attraction and physically and energetically, the heart, the emotions are in alignment. Both agree within thought. And the will does not clash. They work together. And therefore, divinity can work more effectively through them. It's important to also understand that we don't begin with a perfect matrimony. It's something that's developed. We earn it by eliminating in ourselves what creates conflict, what creates incompatibility. It is the ego, our desires, our sense of self, which creates dissonance. Not our zodiacal sign. Not merely our upbringing. Not our beliefs. But our will. You transform your mind, your willpower. You create more beautiful, deep, and profound, and lasting union. But in order to do that, we have to integrate Psyche with Eros. We know from the Greek myth that Eros or Cupid awakened Psyche, the soul. You can read about that myth in the Golden Ass of Apuleius in a sacred text of Greek initiation. Sexuality and desire or will 
cannot be at odds. Everything about us, in terms of our, how we think, feel, and act, have to be in alignment. And this definitely most includes the energy of sex. That teaching has always been taught symbolically because people could not handle in the past the direct explanation of this teaching. It had to be taught in symbols because the sacredness of the knowledge had to be transmitted to people who were mature in order to escape judgment and persecution, the Inquisition. But we're in very different times. We explain the knowledge openly so that people can practice it. These principles are very profound. And also when they're taught symbolically, they are taught in that way because symbols convey more meaning than literal words. They're very dynamic, multidimensional. Any symbol can convey meaning on multiple levels of experience. And that's why we study symbols and what they mean so that we can extract deep wisdom. In the process of this, we study ourselves. When we study our psychological self-image, or when we study our image, we do so so that we understand our full potential. And the creative energy of sexuality is the most powerful force we possess. And with that energy, we can be born again. We can be resurrected as a soul. And so we also study the symbol in the Gospel of Philip talks about the bridal chamber. That bridal chamber is precisely in the East Tantra, the perfect matrimony, divine union. And that through this bridal chamber, which is respected with the most profound sacredness and love, we can become gods. Truth did not come into the world naked, but in symbols and images. The world cannot receive truth in any other way. There is rebirth and an image of rebirth. And it is by means of this image that one must be reborn. What image is this? It is the resurrection. Image must arise through image. By means of this image, the bridal chamber and the image must approach the truth. This is restoration. So there is rebirth and the image of rebirth. Rebirth occurs when you take the energy, whether you're married or single, you elevate it, you conserve it, you illuminate your mind, you give life to your soul with that very power. And the image of rebirth occurs when not only are we conserving that power and using it well, we are eliminating defects. We are purifying the consciousness. We are eliminating pride, anger, lust. That image of rebirth occurs when we remove the psychological impurities, the illusions, the mistakes. 
so that we are truly born again. We become a new person. We are not the same individual we were a year ago or 10 years ago by practicing this. We become a new being. We begin as an embryo spiritually and become a full, perfect human individual, an angel. Image must arise through image. As we're meditating and understanding all the different psychological contaminants of mind and rectifying them, we become perfect. And therefore, by means of this image, the bridal chamber and the image must approach the truth. Meaning, whenever we are with our spouse, we approach the truth, not our desires. Not the animal, but the spirit. In this way, sexuality is integrated. It's not something to be at odds with, or to be confused, or to be at, with, involved with pain, or afflicted. It is restoration. The soul returns through the doorway it left in the Garden of Eden. The word Eden means bliss in Hebrew. It is the voluptuousness of the perfect matrimony. And so we study in this process what's called the three brains or the two witnesses as we see this famous caduceus used by Hermes or Mercury in the Greek and Roman mythologies. We also find this image representing medicine. Two serpents upon a staff with the wings of the spirit open to take one from, we could say, this fallen world up back like Sophia to Pleroma. These two circuits are the flow of energy in our spine that rise from the sexual organs up to the mind. In the book of Revelation, they're called the two witnesses. Even the term witness from the Latin is testes. It's where you get the term testimony. The power of the stone, or the two stones of the ovaries of the, of the testicles, have energy that rise up if we use it intentionally. And those serpents, those two channels, in Hinduism and yoga are called Ida and Pingala, or to use the biblical language, Adam and Eve. Positive, negative, sun and moon. It's like a circuitry that allows divinity to manifest in the spine so that the fire of Pentecost in the Christian church, the Holy Spirit or Kundalini rises. Shekinah amongst the Kabbalists, the force of the divine feminine, the spirit. In order to work with that energy, we study three brains. A brain in spiritual esoteric language is a center of activity, physiologically, energetically, psychologically. We know we have an intellectual brain because we think, but our emotions is also a brain for feeling. And it's very deep. It can register things that you don't access or think about or are conscious of. You think of someone or you feel a sentiment in your heart that something's gonna happen 
And suddenly it does. Intuition. Knowledge comes to us without having to think. But then you also have the brain of action, which is the spine, the sexual organs. It's how we process will or desire. And in Christianity, there is a trinity because we have energy in those three brains. We have the Father in the head, Christ in the heart, the Holy Spirit in sex. Or to use Hindu language, you have Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. The Trinity is represented in all religions in different ways. And those are energies, forces, potential that we can actualize if we know how, if we meditate. This is why in the Bible it says, I think they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He said, to love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and thy neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Three brains, three centers, three energies, but a unity if we create that unification in us. Because in our common day, we tend to be very disbalanced or imbalanced. The mind is not working with the heart, or the heart is not working with sex. We have confusion. We have a tower of Babel, esoterically speaking. And so we have to respect these energies in our mind, heart, and body, so that the energies rise with clarity and wisdom. If we have impure mind or heart or physicality, the energies don't flow well. We know this in Eastern medicine, especially. Tai Chi, Qigong, acupuncture. If the energies are flowing well, you have health. If they are impure, we get sick. Mentally, emotionally, physically. So we work with the spine, these energies, these two channels, Ida Pingala, Adam, Eve, in order to be anointed. The Gospel of Philip states, those who receive the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and have accepted them must do this. If someone does not accept them, the name will also be taken from that person. A person receives them in the chrism with the oil of the power of the cross. The apostles call this power the right, pingala, and the left, ida. This person is no longer a Christian, but is Christ. To receive the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit means... Purify your mind, purify your heart, purify your body. To not accept superior forces within our interior is to have the name taken from one. The name in Hebrew means Hashem. In Judaism, when you're in synagogue, you say Baruch Hashem Adonai, blessed be the name of the Lord. They use that as an appellation for Yod Jehovah, because it is a sacred name not to be spoken in vain. Yod, Chava, male, female, brain, and sex. If you relate the Hebrew to the body, Yod means head, or can mean the head. Chava, Eve, the mother of the living, is the sexual organs. 
And when you unify all that, you have the blessings of your inner being. You receive it through the chrism with the oil of the power of the cross. A cross is a symbol of a matrimony. The vertical phallus, the horizontal uterus, in which we crucify our passions, our egotism, so that we can be anointed, not to be a Christian, a believer, but to become Christ, perfect. So the word chrism is the oil that is used in anointment, such as when confirming in the Catholic Church or blessing a new soul who's entering the spiritual path. We have an image here of the lingam yoni within Hinduism. It's a symbol of the cross. You have the horizontal uterus and the vertical phallus. This is the power of Shiva Shakti. Shiva Shakti is the creative and destructive power of sex because sexuality can ennoble or condemn. It depends on our use. The word chrism even sounds like the Hindu slang jism, which literally means body or the female or male genitals, the vulva or penis. Seminal fluid, which is earlier from energy or strength. Literally, the creative energy is what gives a person strength. We know from boxers or from Chinese medicine that they advise, do not go to your partner when you're sick or as in the case of a fighter, before you fight. Because the virya, the word virya means virility, means warrior. That term, I believe, is, I think, Sanskrit, refers to the strength that ennobles the hero. Even the word hero sounds like heros, eros, the power of the saints who conquer themselves. And that oil, that energy, which in most people tends to be wasted, is instead used to conserve and transformed, becomes the light that illuminates the mind. And so we have an image here from an earlier lecture on the Gnostic Mysteries of Chastity from this course, where angels attend to the uh, bedroom of the couple. And that is a beautiful symbol of the way that sexuality should be treated. It should be treated in a way of great reverence and awe. I believe in the Acts of Thomas, you find a myth in which Jesus of Nazareth, the twin of Thomas, attended to the bedside of a bride and, bride and groom in order to guide them in these mysteries. And this mystery is when you are connected with your partner, when man and wife are united, to remember God, not desire, not animality, but love. Because your inner divinity watches everything we do. And even the masters of the great hierarchies within the divine kingdoms, these Elohim, or the Hebrew term for angels, watch to see what we will do.
And we can ask for their help to raise the fire, awaken Kundalini, ascend. And so the ancients were very respectful. They knew the sacredness of this act and had propriety. Their matrimony obviously is a private affair. And we find that kind of represented here in the Gospel of Philip, where they talk about, in a conventional sense, what was considered ethical at the time. While it might seem outdated to a modern mind, in truth, these are esoteric principles. They are symbolic. If a marriage is open to the public, it has become prostitution. And the bride plays the harlot not only when she is impregnated by another man, but even if she slips out of her bedroom and is seen. Let her show herself only to the, her father and her mother and to the friend of the bridegroom and the sons of the bridegroom. These are permitted to enter every day into the bridal chamber. We're not talking about literal people. Obviously, there may be one level of meaning there. But when you enter the bridal chamber, you do so knowing that your divine father and your divine mother, your being, is watching. We have that duality, Shiva Shakti, Adam Eve, male, female, the Holy Spirit, which is both the Divine Father and the Divine Mother, or the Hebrew term in the Bible, Jehovah Elohim, which is the name of God that created man in his image. Male, female, he created them. Show oneself only to the Father and the Mother, meaning we must not think of other things. We must only remember divinity. Who is the friend of the bridegroom? Among the Gnostics, Christos, Christ, which is not a person, but an energy. That energy is what guides the couple, like in the Acts of Thomas. Christ the energy of life is the one who is our deepest friend. And we must remember our own inner Christ, the light. That is the friend of the bridegroom who is permitted to enter the bedchamber. No one else. Not pride, not anger, not fear, not laziness, not lust. They cannot enter. We have to put it aside. In the beginning, it is not easy. We cannot be perfect in the beginning, but we train little by little to make it perfect. And who are the sons of the bridegroom who are permitted to enter the bridal chamber? We call them solar bodies. The sons of Noah. Noah in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, symbolizes the soul who has three sons. We call them, in esoteric way, language, a solar mind, a solar heart, and a solar will. Vehicles that we activate and create as represented in this image, the tree of life, these lower spheres. Hod, the astral body, Netzach, the mental body, Tifereth, the body of will. To talk in Jewish mystical terms, Kabbalah. Solar bodies are the wedding garment of the soul. Are, these are vehicles that we use when we dream. They are superior. They manifest the divine so that our dreams are not incoherent, but 
visionary. And we can navigate these higher worlds with competence, with skill. We need a solar mind, solar emotion, and solar will, meaning Christ is manifested there whenever we enter the sec sexual act. We don't need to have solar bodies already, these vehicles prepared, but we have to have that attitude. We have to, use, we have to approach the act with utmost care. And this is how we are defined, made, and recognized, according to the Gospel of Philip. Alchemists are those who are precisely tantric initiates who work with the creative force. We have here, I believe, the anointment of uh, King Saul. I don't remember the biblical figure that was first anointed, but that is a symbol of how we take the oil, the shemen in Hebrew, which is the literal term for ointment, and by preserving it and raising the energy up to our head, we become crowned with glory. Shemen means oil. That's where we get the term semen. And when you work with the energy, the chrism, the anointment, you are transforming yourself. It's important to remember that in many traditions, it is a symbol, not a literal fact for most people. Many people can be anointed, go through catechism, such as with the Catholic Church, and receive a type of baptism and ritual. These are symbols of a deeper reality. We are truly baptized and anointed when we're working with sex daily, transforming the energies so that we give birth to the soul, so that we can be become true kings and queens of our psychological and moral universe. This is why the Gospel of Philip states, But let the others yearn just to listen to her voice and to enjoy her ointment, shemen, and let them feed from the crumbs that fall from the table like the dogs. Bridegrooms and brides belong to the bridal chamber. No one shall be able to see the bridegroom with the bride unless he becomes such a one. When you experience your soul, such as through meditation, out of the body and dreams, like in the tree of life, and you have these mystical visions where you see your God teaching you through symbols, you become inflamed, inspired, and driven to receive even the crumbs of the bread of knowledge, even those little meditative states we may get from time to time, to the point that we are like Tantalus in the Greek myth at the table of the gods. And so we strive to receive those experiences because we want to know the truth. Bridegrooms and brides belong to the bridal chamber. And no one shall be able to see the bridegroom with the bride unless he becomes such a one, meaning an alchemist. When you meet, perhaps, initiates of the White Lodge, the superior dimensions, not physically, but internally, you recognize them. When you're working with this science and you awaken in your dreams, you see these masters come to you and you recognize them immediately. You cannot recognize them if you're not working, if you're not awakening. Because our dreams in the beginning tend to be very incoherent or scattered. They're not unified. They're not profound. But when you perform this, they come to you. And you 
you immediately see them for who they are because you're awake. You're no longer dreaming. You're conscious. We gave a whole course on this called Dream Yoga and Astral Travel. You can listen to on our podcast. It talks about a lot of these principles. So what are the requisites of alchemy? You see a beautiful couple here in the sign of their honeymoon. There's a basic requisite according to the Gospel of Philip, but also we included a synonymous verse from the Perfect Matrimony by Samal and Vior. A bridal chamber is not for the animals, nor is it for the slaves, nor for defiled women, but it is for free men and virgins. Obviously, the language is, can be very dissonant, especially to our modern mind. However, it is symbolic, not literal. A bridal chamber is not for the animals. Who are the animals? Pride, anger, laziness, lust, appetite, desire. We all have animals within. We call them egos, defects. Vices, errors, our cravings and aversions. They can't enter the sexual act, or at least to the degree enough so that we can practice. Obviously, in the beginning, we're swarmed with many elements that we see in ourselves as we're trying to practice this science. We have a lot of lust, a lot of internal adultery, prostitution, defects which are very chaotic. In the beginning, we see them. But little by little, we eliminate them. What's important is that when we begin the practice, that we don't let that define the act. We don't let it define our marriage, our relationship. Neither must we be a slave to passion, addicted to sensation. The union itself is beautiful, is sacred, is pleasurable. But that is not the point. It is not merely to have sensations. They are present, but we must not be attached to them. Neither repress them, neither hide from them, neither reject them. Two extremes. The middle path is the Tao. White and black, black and white. Yin and yang, opposites unify. Nor is it for defiled women. Really, it's referring to Eve. And Eve is a sexual symbol. Chava, mother of the living. It is the sexual organs. Our sexual organs must not be defiled. We must not reach the orgasm. That is the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge. When you smell the aroma, we do not transgress its boundaries. We gain knowledge. We tame the serpent, Kundalini, up the spine. It is for free men and virgins. What does it mean to be free? Really, are we free from pain, from addiction, from ego? And what does it mean to be virginal? It doesn't mean to not have sex. It means to be pure. Transform the impure act into a pure act so that you can give birth like an immaculate conception. 
obviously that part of the Christian tradition was confused that Mary gave birth without sex because people thought or think of sex as something filthy, but it can be immaculate. And that is how you give birth to the soul. Free men and virgins. People who have some level of stability so that they can, little by little, gain more ground. Make it more and more perfect. This is why Samal and Vior said in The Perfect Matrimony, we understand people of normal sexuality to be those who have have no sexual conflicts of any kind. And that this is the basis of alchemy. Obviously, in our world, what we call normal is very different from what the Elohim, the gods, consider normal. Our planet is very abnormal. If you look at really deeply, normal sexuality means, according to the esoteric terminology, is people who have conscious control to some degree of themselves who are not overwhelmed or driven by so many traumas or perhaps psychological conflicts that they are not willing to practice or to change. Obviously, any person can perform this path, can approach it, can approach the normal angelic way of engaging in this act. But obviously, in the beginning, we start with where we're at. We gain balance little by little. We mustn't have enough contradiction in ourselves that will impede the work. And the way that we do it is by meditating on ourselves. Here we see Jesus baptized by John in the River Jordan. These verses from the Gospel of Philip are very beautiful. And they really emphasize the most important aspect of alchemy. There are many people who read The Perfect Matrimony by Samuel Vior and become very inspired to want to enter this path. They hear about the love between husband and wife and the spiritual potential that it has. But some people get married or approach sex with ambition, with pride, with desire. And there are some who enter relationships, perhaps out of loneliness or fear or guilt, shame or fear of being alone. And that it becomes the basis of their matrimony. There is perhaps spiritual ambition between people, couples that may get together because they are Gnostic or because they practice a certain faith or a certain religion rather than love. Really, love is the defining principle of any union. It should be the most important thing Because there are people who I've known who sought a partner in this way out of uh, fear or, or ambition to be spiritual that they entered failure because they did not love their partner. Love is the requisite. You are born again or we are born again through the Holy Spirit by working with the creative power. But the one who spiritually conceives the union is Christ in the heart. We are born again through the Holy Spirit and we are conceived through Christ in baptism with two elements. We are anointed through the Spirit and when we are, we are conceived, we were united. So conception is when two partners, two people meet 
and become filled with love. That spark, that unexplainable hunch, and that whisper in the, in the interior of our being calls us to know this person and to know ourselves. It is inexpressible, but for the one who has lived it, knows it. That is the spiritual conception. When Christ brings two souls together, your our inner divinities, so that we can be perfect. This is why Salman Vier stated in the perfect matrimony, love begins with a flash of delectable sympathy. It is substantiated with infinite tenderness and it is synthesized with supreme adoration. It begins with a flash, a spark. It is substantiated with tenderness, with getting to know the person and is synthesized in a matrimony. When Christ, our inner divinity, unifies us with our partner, it is divinely ordained. It is sacred. And you will know that through experience. You can be given experiences, insights, which teach you about this. Obviously, I'm speaking for people who are not married. Maybe who are looking for a partner. But also, if we are married, we should consider and meditate on this truth how love was born, how it is substantiated, how it is inspired, how it is deepened. Because that is the spiritual conception. And the two elements that baptize are water and light, or water and spirit. The Hebrew term for light is aor. Aleph, vav, resh, reading right to left. And then the water is maim. Mem, yod, mem. Water and light. The water is the creative energy. The sperm and the man or the ovum and woman. The waters of life. Which we drink symbolically when we transmute. We take the energies when we create light in ourselves. Light is born from the energies of life. As we see here. Also, as we're practicing with the energies of creation, we start to see things. And that is how we are really baptized spiritually. Water and light. You take the light out of the water, the fire out of the water, by extracting it through mantra, sacred sounds, prayer, meditation. And therefore you start to see things in your visions. No one can see oneself in the water or in a mirror without light. Aor. And the water is maim. Nor can you see yourself in the light without water or a mirror. So it is necessary to baptize with two elements, light and water. And light is chrism. Literally, the power to see spiritually is the sexual power. You must extract light from the darkness. Yehi aor va yehi aor in the Old Testament. Let there be light and there was light. I believe Ibn Rumi in the Muslim Sufi tradition stated that those who, are, who look in water in a cup will see their own faces in it if they're filled with desire. But those who are in love with Allah will see Him. This approach to sex. What do we see in the act? Is it our own passions or is it love? We have to meditate on that. 
Here, I mentioned briefly about the Tree of Life. This image is a Jewish mystical glyph, which maps out the whole cosmos from the more dense levels of matter, energy, and experience up to the most spiritual. Ten spheres, ten modes of being. We are in Malkut, which is the physical body. Above that, we have Yasad, which is our vitality, the creative sexual energy. Hod is the emotional body, our ex emotional experiences. Netzach is our mind. Tifereth is will. Above that, we have the divine soul, which is the spiritual consciousness. And to the right, we have Hesed, the spirit, our inner God. Above that, we have the top trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Keter, Chokmah, Bina, the Trinity, Christ. This glyph is very profound, and we'll explain it in relation to four directions, because the Gospel of Philip uses this abstract language of Kabbalah to teach something very deep about the nature of sexual liberation and alchemy. Obviously, I'm using the term sexual liberation not in the conventional sense. Because neither giving in to passion or rejecting it is the way. Understanding it. Comprehending it. The middle path. They talk about three buildings which were used for sacrifice in Jerusalem. One of them is called the Holy. Another facing, I believe it was facing the West. And the one facing the south, the holy of the holy. And then facing east is the holy of the holies. Three, four directions. North, south, east, west. So it's a symbolic language. The north can relate to Hesed, the spirit. And even in many mystical writings, you find that even Nietzsche talked about spiritual understanding as being up in the mountains, up in the cold. Like you see here in the three mountain poster, which is the map of the whole path from beginning to end. The South can relate to Geburah, the divine soul, the source of spiritual strength, Neshama in Hebrew, or the divine soul that knights the hero, Tifereth, the warrior. Tifereth is Lancelot. Geburah is Guinevere. Kased is Arthur, symbolically. The East relates to Dat, which is up towards the top trinity. Dat is the tree of knowledge. It means knowledge in Hebrew. It is sexual knowledge. It is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It is the wisdom we extract when we practice the perfect matrimony. You take this image of the tree of life and put it on a human being. The top trinity is in the head, middle trinity in the heart, lower trinity towards sex. Dat is in the throat. Because with a uh, perfect matrimony, you're praying in the act and using mantras to transform the creative force into light. That is the source of mystical knowledge. And so the Gospel of Philip emphasizes all of this. I'll read it for you. There were three buildings specifically for sacrifice in Jerusalem. The one facing the west was called the Holy. Another facing the south was called the Holy of the Holy. The third facing east was called the Holy of the Holies the place where only the high priest enters. Baptism is the holy building, Malkut. Redemption is the holy of the holies, Geburah. The holy of the holies is the bridal chamber, Da'at. 
Baptism includes the resurrection and the redemption. The redemption takes place in the bridal chamber. It's very deep. I'm going to unpack this to the best of my ability. Sacrifice, in this sense, has nothing to do with killing animals for ritual. Better said, it's a symbol of sacrificing our ego, our animal desires. Facing the West is the Holy, which is where baptism takes place. Interestingly enough, not only are physical ceremonies of ritual water are performed in Malkut, the body, but that is where the water of life exists. And we can baptize ourselves through this science. Facing the south is Geburah, the holy of the holy. We call it that because Geburah, the divine consciousness, is the spiritual soul. She never enters impurity. She is virtuous. And it was represented in Wagner's opera as the Valkyria, who sing before going to battle in Act 3 of Die Valkyria, the Valkyrie, in the Nordic mythology. Gebra is like a glass of alabaster that contains the spirit, a pure, translucent, and divine state. Very sacred, never mixes with ego. Therefore, she is holy because she contains all the principles of Christ above. But you also find that um, redemption is the holy of the holy. We are redeemed through her. If you've ever seen uh, pictures of, I believe, the accolade, it's a beautiful princess knighting a warrior with a sword. It is this symbol. She is the one who decides whether we enter initiation or not. The hero, the soul, fights against the ego, so that's to be knighted by her. She is the redemption. She determines whether we pass or fail. And she is our own conscience. She is the root of that voice that says this is right and this is wrong. Do this and don't do that. When we obey her, we rise. And when we obey her, we kneel. The holy of the holies, the bridal chamber is dot because that is the sexual act. That is where Really, redemption takes place, like the myth of Parsifal, or even Wagner's opera of that name, where the hero must face sexual temptation to decide whether he will redeem the Gnostic Church from the fall of its main priest, Amfortas. It's my intention to show the opera at one point and give lectures on it, but if you want to know more about that symbol, you can study the Parsifal unveiled by Samal and Vior, who talks about opera and its esoteric symbols. Baptism includes resurrection because physically the body must really purify itself. And redemption takes place in the sexual act itself. What we do decides our fate. And that is the space where the real high priest enters. A real priest is a magician in control of four elements, fire, the emotions, air, thought, water, sex, and earth, the body. The high priest or magician must 
officiate within his or her psychological temple. Because just as there are priests, there are priestesses. Every husband is a priest who is performing this work. And every uh, wife is a priestess. And that way, you fulfill the sacraments of the Gnostic Church. As we were talking about in an earlier lecture called uh, How to Be a Gnostic Priest. We included this image of a chalice, the Holy Grail, to represent woman. The Holy Grail, while an artifact, represents for us the woman, the spouse, the yoni, the feminine sexual organs, in which the blood of the Redeemer is found. It is precisely in the sexual organs where we find the water, the blood, and the wine of redemption, according to the Gnostic Mass, the Gnostic rituals. Wine is an alchemical symbol. When you ferment or transform the sexual waters, the semen, into the wine of the spirit, you intoxicate the soul with bliss. Now again, semen does not refer literally just to men. It is the waters or oils of creation, whether in men or women. Both men and women have sexual energy and potential that must be transformed, transmuted into wine. Because the first miracle of Jesus was transforming water into wine in a marriage. And so we know that also the sperm or ovum, I believe one drop of sperm is the equivalent of 80 drops of blood. And the quality of our blood determines the quality of our potency, the sexual force. It is from these waters that we create the solar bodies. So these are the vehicles of the soul, as I mentioned. To do that, we must be baptized. We have here in the Gospel of Philip. The cup of prayer contains wine and water, ayin and ma'im, since it is appointed as the type of the blood, dam, dalet mem, for which thanks is given. And it is full of the Holy Spirit, and it belongs to the holy perfect man. When we do drink this, we shall receive for ourselves the perfect man. The living ma'im, water, is a body. It is necessary that we put on the living man. Therefore, when he is about to go down into the ma'im, the water, he enclosed himself in order that he may put on the living man. This is not referring literally to the physical male sex. Man, even from Sanskrit, means manas, which means mind. Superior manas is tifereth. It is willpower, whether in men or women. The living man is not strictly limited to the male sex, but it is the solar vehicles we create in a matrimony. It is from the blood and wine. It is from our heart and the sexual potential which, of which we give thanks because it is full of the Holy Spirit. And the perfect man or perfect woman, the perfect human being, arises from it. So we must unclothe our egotistical garments or lunar rags. If you've studied astral travel, we know that we have a lunar astral body, lunar mental body. These are vehicles given to us by nature. They're mechanical. We don't create them through a marriage. We just, are, we just have them so that we can exist. But to go into higher planes, you need to put on the living garments, the solar vehicles, so that you can go to higher states. Now, you can access temporary states of enlightenment, a vacation, 
But to become a citizen there, we must have the soul of bodies. That's fundamental. Therefore, we must go down into the water, as in baptism. Every initiation is a result of a descent. Every exaltation is a result of humiliation. Because we have to face trials and ordeals within the perfect matrimony to see whether we qualify for the path. We also talk about three Hebrew letters, Aleph, Shin, Mem. We find Aleph within the Hebrew word Aur, light, as in Aleph, Vav, Resh. Shin is fire, Mem is water. These letters represent principles, truths. And they are the essence of sexual potency. They're also the source of real beauty. Not merely physical, but spiritual. We see here that the Gospel of Philip emphasizes two elements, fire and water. And that within the waters of sex is the fire of life. And therefore from the fire of temptation, by conquering lust, we gain light, wisdom, victory. Soul and spirit came into being from water, mem, and fire, shin. The attendant of the bridal chamber has come into being from water, fire, and light. Fire is chrism. Light is fire. I do not mean ordinary fire, which has no form, but other fire, which is pure white in appearance, beautifully bright and imparting beauty. Who is the attendant of the bridal chamber? It is any person who is working in the perfect matrimony. And that really, we come into being through fire and light, through anointing ourselves. This is the astral light mentioned by Samal and Vior in the perfect matrimony. Not literal fire, but spiritual fire. And when you meet masters like him in the astral plane, they have beautiful golden appearance, shining the light of the absolute above the tree of life through them, the region of Barbello among the Gnostics. Here we see that we have the tree of life transposed on the human body. Yasal relates to the sexual organs. Yasal means foundation. And these Hebrew letters, Yod, Samek, Vav, Dalet, spell foundation in Hebrew. It is foundation because it is the rock of our church, the stone of Peter, literally patar, or slang for the phallus. You also can rearrange these Hebrew letters, Yod at the end, to make Sodi, which means secret. This is the secret knowledge that was never taught publicly until the 60s. And it is the ninth sphere from the top to the bottom. And the number nine relates to alchemy, transmutation, this sacred work. We want to raise the energies up the spine of our tree of life because our spine is a tree of life in itself. It is this energy which can help change us and catalyze our spiritual development. It's also the energy that helps us crucify our passions, as I said. Here's what the Gospel of Philip stated. Philip the Apostle said, Joseph the carpenter planted a garden because he needed wood for his trade. It was he who made the cross from the trees which he planted. His own offspring hung on that which he planted. His offspring was Jesus, and the planting was the cross. But the tree of life is in the middle of the garden. However, it is from the olive tree that we got the chrism, and from the chrism, the resurrection. Very deep. What is a carpenter? It is any one of us who is working with the tree of knowledge. We're fashioning wood 
to build a house of the Spirit. It is from the cross of the tree of knowledge in which we eliminate our passions because Shiva Shakti is the power to create and destroy. Create spiritual life, but destroy the ego. The one who hangs on that is Yeshua, the Savior, the Savior Fire, or Inri in Latin, Ignis Natura Renovator Integra, which is the esoteric translation of Jesus Nazarenus Rex Iuriarum, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The real initiates. He is a fire from which arises from the chrism. The tree of life is in the middle of the garden because the garden of Eden is sex. And the tree of life rises from it. We gain the chrism, the sacred oil of God, through the tree of knowledge, which shares its roots within Yesod. That is how we achieve spiritual resurrection. Now, we'll conclude with one more explanation about the nature of sexuality. There are many people who uh, think of the spirituality of sex as something contradictory. There are many people in different faiths and religions that feel that real spirituality is divorced from sex and that the sexual act is not, does not have the potential to transform, only to condemn. Now, abstinence was or is obviously practiced by many priests of different faiths or many monks and nuns. What's important to remember is that these monks and nuns from different faiths are practicing their tradition if they're transmuting the energies. Because it's not enough just to, well, practice devotion in the heart or study in the mind, but to conquer the creative force. And so there are many traditions that have lost the meaning of this. Monks and nuns used to practice as single persons to transmute their creative force so that they would be trained for a matrimony and be prepared. Obviously, the conventional churches have lost the meaning of this. A real priest is, a, as I said, a magician who conquers the sexual act itself. It's not possible to renounce something that we haven't conquered. We can ignore sex and avoid it, but still that energy will act, usually in subversive ways. So it's important to take that power intentionally and use it for good things like creativity, art, painting, sculpture, being conscious, being a better person. One can only abstain from sex when one has conquered it. And it's important to remember that sex is not merely the end in itself, but it is a door. It is a door of Eden that leads up from Yasod to the heights. And when the work is fully done, we've perfected ourselves, there's no ego, no mistakes left. We've paid all our debts. Sex is forbidden. One doesn't need it anymore. That's when one can renounce sex itself. But we need the energy of creative power to enter the work. Here's what Salman Vior said about this in the Major Mysteries. In the beginning, we must be intensely sexual, transmuting our sexual energy and sexual cooperation with our spouse. Thereafter, we must renounce sex. In the beginning, we have to develop powers. Thereafter, we have to renounce them. Some people do not understand the former statements and act awkwardly, as when someone wants to take part in a horse race without having a horse. Or if they have it, they want to begin the race facing towards the rear of the horse instead of its head. Yes, some wretched people understand everything in reverse 
In other words, they want to renounce sex without first having awakened the sacred fire. Or they want to renounce powers without first having acquired them. How foolish they are, renouncing something that they don't have. Yet they are incapable of renouncing what they do have. Indeed, this path is very difficult. This is the path of the razor's edge. Understand that only the one who has become Christified, perfect, divine, can renounce sex. And only the one who is already prepared to enter the Absolute can renounce its power, his powers. The Absolute is known as the region of Barbello, above the Tree of Life. It is the goal of the Gnostics, the return. To help you in your studies, we have two books which teach about alchemy in depth. The Perfect Matrimony and The Mystery of the Golden Flower by Samal and Vior. They go very deep into the nature of pretty much everything related to this work. It can help you begin practicing, especially if you were married. And even if you're single too, obviously, The Perfect Matrimony teaches everything about the Gnostic path itself in great detail. At this time... I invite you to ask questions. Sure. So you talked a lot about in the scripture, bride and bridegroom. And I've heard it said in esotericism that the bride can represent Malkuth, Kabbalistically the physical body. In that case, if that's true, would the bridegroom be Christ coming into the physical body? Yes. There's that level of meaning. Alchemically, the bride is the wife, or the priestess, and the groom is the husband, the priest. On a deeper level, obviously, bride and bridegroom activate Christ in themselves, and then divinity can enter and manifest in them. Multiple levels of application. I'm still struggling to understand how to utilize the principles of the four elements, and in general, um, what... Uh, what I meant to learn with the whole magician piece and like that control of the self within the matrix sure. and therefore releasing from it. Kind of like what you're saying about understanding sure. sex and then releasing from it. Sure. Yeah. So I would study a course given by Glorian Publishing, whose books we sell called Meditation Essentials. Okay. When you learn to meditate, you control the four elements. You allow the layers of the mind to stratify, to calm, so that we can begin to receive understanding about our experiences and our psychology. In that course, you will learn that image that you see on the wall to your right, the nine stages of meditative concentration, stages of serenity, which begins with a monk chasing after a wild elephant, ascending up a winding path up to a height of equipose and perfect peace. That's a symbol of how we have to chase after our mind with willpower, concentration, in order to calm the mind. Now, what's important to remember is that that's where gaining stability of consciousness, concentration, being able to focus on one thing without forgetting it, we start to get insight into that particular thing. And that's how you can begin to understand any experience. And also, more importantly, it'll teach you how to calm the four elements. Literally, asana, posture, you calm your body, the earth. Um, with energy work, you work with the waters. With meditation and concentration, serenity, you calm the air, the mind, and the heart, the fire. So that when you control those four elements, you can enter like you see the monk at the very top of that image, the higher dimensions. That's dream yoga. When you meditate and fall asleep, your mind is in perfect equipose. And suddenly you enter the astral dimension and see reality for what it is. 
you know, and also it'll gain you, give you understanding about any particular experience that you've had. You just concentrate, you can visualize the experience and wait for the answer. Then suddenly the insight comes, it hits you. So meditation essentials is very deep. I would study that course. You're welcome. Can I speak on the four ordeals? So another part of the path of initiation, which is the path where we become the initiate or we try to become the magician, is that especially at the beginning, but also at various points again through the path, we experience the four ordeals of the four elements. And by conquering these ordeals, we can develop that mastery of ourselves. So if you're thinking of it matrix style, that everything that happens in manifested reality our relationships with other people, our experiences in life, is just there as a sort of spiritual test for us to learn something about ourselves, for us to master ourselves. Then we associate the four ordeals with different types of experiences. So you might experience an ordeal of fire in your physical life as someone you're close to criticizing you a lot. And that brings up anger, that brings up shame, that brings up these fiery feelings within. When we learn to master that, to acknowledge the situation, but to develop serenity and sweetness of character, to not get totally identified and upset by the situation, but rather to transform the situation in a positive way, then on that level, we've mastered that ordeal. We've developed some level of magic to transform our life in a positive direction. Briefly, the ordeal of water would relate with overwhelming changes of circumstances where you feel like you're drowning in a new social situation. You have to learn how to swim. You have to learn how to adapt. Uh, air can relate to loss, loss of a job, loss of a partner, loss of something that brought you stability before, and now you feel like you're falling with nothing to hold on to. So how do you develop um, the flexibility to be able to, to fly? Even when you feel like you have nothing to hold on to, how do you have faith? And with earth, we can feel the sort of pressure, crushing circumstances where you have to develop a lot of perseverance to really push through them and to not give up, but to keep developing strength of will to get through them. So briefly, I'd say that that's another good place to recognize what element might this situation that I'm struggling with in my life be, be representing and what do I need to master within myself to not be overwhelmed by the situation, but to recognize the situation for what it is and to bring a quality out of my own soul that transforms it into a positive situation for the other people involved and for myself as well. Um, Someone on the or he states that the perfect matrimony consists of two souls, one who loves more and one who loves better. Elaborate on that? Two pillars of the tree of life. Wisdom and love. You see the Kabbalah has three pillars. The right, the left, and the middle. On the right we have the pillar of mercy. On the left we have the pillar of severity. And on the middle we have the pillar of equilibrium. You could say also wisdom and love. From the right to the left. Now, these relate to certain um, conventional norms, obviously with men and women, in terms of a psychological disposition. But esoterically speaking, um, the one who loves more is woman. More heart, more feeling, more love. But also, 
man is more wisdom, knowing, loving better, more conceptual, rational. I mean, if you break it down in a that sense. But that's not to say that paradigm defines every relationship because couples are mixed. People are unique and different. But we find wisdom with um, knowing how to live and love through the left pillar. And it's interesting that on the left pillar of the tree of life, we have severity relating to love. Primarily because real love can be severe. And really, if you're married and your wife loves you, she'll be very severe with you when you deserve it for your own good. And as a husband, one has, can be, one has to try to be wise as well. But obviously, there's wisdom and love in both couples. But that's a very profound and enigmatic, obviously, statement, which I think if even by trying to define it, in a sense, I butcher it. Because when you love someone, you find that deeply in your soul that there are principles that relate to the Divine Father and the Divine Mother. Wisdom is the Divine Father. Love is the Divine Mother. Together they have the path of equilibrium, which is da'at in Hebrew, real knowledge. So. Sure. This might be a whole class, but I was kind of curious about the difference between, I guess, good desire and bad desire and kind of how sure. the will relates to desire. Sure. Yeah, in strict esoteric language, we say desire is ego. You know, I want, I crave, I need. Ego. Obviously, there's another quality related to the soul. We call it longing, yearning. Um, the thirst of the consciousness for the truth. It's not to say that, you know, the Sufi way of describing this truth, they talk about desiring God. Obviously, they have a poetic way to talk about the same principle. You know, when the, our soul or willpower, free of ego, aspires. You know, we tend to break it down a little bit further because in the West, we tend to be very uh, conditioned by language in the sense like we have a certain interpretation of what desire means. And because we're, strictly speaking, about 97% desire, ego, we tend to go in accordance with our conditioning, interpreting things, like seeing scripture or life or spirituality in that way. Um, we have 3% of the consciousness that can, is free, that can aspire to the heights. And we are trying to free the rest of our psyche from conditions. We do that by yearning for God, longing. And Rumi, obviously, one of my favorite poets from the Sufi tradition, talks about desiring God. I believe there's an Arabic term, uh, murid and murad, which means the, the desired and the desiree, the longing for the truth. And so when they talk about desiring God, obviously it's a sexual trope, alchemical teaching. And if you want to know more about that topic specifically, I would study the course we gave in our podcast. It's called uh, The Sufi Principles of Meditation, as well as um, The Sufi Path of Self-Knowledge, especially the lecture, the last course, the lecture called Divine Love. It's all about that. Yeah, very profound. Sure. But I wanted to add on to the earlier question about a distinction, or at least the relationship between desire and will. 
because I hear a lot that question around, well, if I have no desire, what am I going to do? Am I just going to sit around? Um, a lot of us are used to being motivated by the things that we want, our goals, our aspirations, and what we desire. And so when this instructor is saying ego, we think of it in terms of I. There is a self there that we feel that wants to attain things, that wants to accomplish things. Um, and so when we live in a state where everything we do has some kind of selfish motive, some desire there, we can't really conceptualize what it would be like to live without that. But I want to say that there is a terrestrial self, you know, who we are here physically, and then there is a divine self. And until we calm the terrestrial self and we restrain desire enough, which we can do through alchemy or pranayama, but also through meditation or reflection, until we restrain that self, we don't know much about the divine self. And when we look at masters, you know, beings like Moses, Muhammad, you know, Jesus, uh, Buddha, they had the divine self fully incarnated, you know, to serve humanity, to give spiritual teachings, to perform spiritual miracles. And unfortunately, while there's so much of this selfish, uh, false self active and moving through us, there's not enough space for divinity to come in. I think there's a phrase that God or the divine fills the vacuum fills the void. So we need to create enough emptiness within and remove desire so that divine will can come and will act through us. And the Sufis even collaborate that one is only a Sufi when they renounce desire. Um, but also one must have, or better said, one must have uh, the will to practice. But one must also be a Sufi in the sense of having no will at all. To the point that in your individual work, the more that divinity manifests in the psyche, his will, not ours. You know. Sure. Um, do you have any tips or suggestions when meditating on an ego? Because I know the, the visages and the faces of these egos very well, but sometimes I still have a lot great amount of difficulty holding an image in my mind for more than a few seconds. Sure. So could you like maybe give some uh, guidance on how to increase that or get better? Sure. Uh, practice visualization exercises. You can take a candle, view it, light it, observe it, and close your eyes and imagine it. Try to visualize it with as much color and depth as you can. You can even smell the candle internally, even if your body's falling asleep, because those are senses that are activated when you train. The ability to perceive more imagery in terms of the uh, spectrum of consciousness depends on how active we work out that muscle. You can visualize an image, a candle, it could be something very simple in the beginning. And that's usually what's re recommended by, for many Tibetan Buddhist monks as they're trying to visualize, say, very complex images like, uh, say, the stages of serenity or any uh, mural that you see in Tibetan monasteries. If you take an, a complex image, you can take one section, say like you see have the chakra poster, and you can visualize maybe one aspect, maybe the hand to begin with, or maybe the head. And then as you start to gain more sustainability of the image, you can hold it in your mind or consciousness without losing the quality or the the 
state of it, you can expand your practice, make it much more robust. Picture the head and then the shoulders and then the body until finally you're, t- you're visualizing the entire image with lucidity. But obviously start small, five minutes, 10 minutes, small objects so that you train your consciousness to have enough strength to first recall the image without it changing and adapting because of the mind. And then later on with more depth. So you can maintain it with continuity. Yeah, there's some practices we gave in the Sufi Principles of Meditation course, especially the lecture called Awareness, Unveiling, and Witnessing. We gave a practice where you can even take a plant, imagine uh, its birth as a seed, as it grows into a sprout, finally a, a flower in its prime, and then its decay. And as you're imagining that process of birth, death, evolution, devolution, and you fall asleep, you will enter the dreaming state with more awareness. And you can even talk to, say, if you have a physical plant, the soul of that plant. And the same quality or the same ability to imagine or visualize is the same quality that you have when you dream. If you can perceive more in your dreams, it means that your imagination is much more robust or has more potential. Um, But yeah, start with a small visualization practice. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.